On September 2, 2014, Abby Brockway was one of five protesters, the Delta Five, who blockaded a BNSF train carrying crude oil near Everett, Washington. The eight-hour protest shut down the Delta rail yard for the day and led to the group's arrest and charges of obstruction. The case went to trial, but the judge allowed, for a time, what was termed the necessity defense, an argument contending that while the actions were illegal, they were necessary to prevent greater harm. This past January, a jury convicted the Delta Five of only a misdemeanor charge of trespassing, which included fines but no jail time. In concluding the trial, Judge Anthony Howard said, quote, Frankly, the court is convinced that the defendants are far from the problem and are part of the solution to the problem of climate change. What is the state of the climate change protest movement? Is civil disobedience the right or the only response? Would you risk arrest and prosecution to protect the environment? Humanities Washington made these questions the focus of their most recent Think and Drink event at Naked City Brewery. KUOW's environment reporter Ashley Ahern served as moderator. The panel included activist Abby Brockway and UW professors Richard Gammon and Megan Ming Francis. Thanks to Bree Ripley for our recording. Here, Humanities Washington's Zeki Barak Hamid introduces the discussion. I'm going to introduce uh, our moderator for today from KUOW, Ashley Ahern, who is really now one of my heroes. Uh, if you don't listen to her KUOW, please do. Her stories are some of the most fascinating I've heard in the past few years. Uh, so, everybody, Ashley Ahern. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming out tonight. Um, so I work for KUOW's Earth Fix team. We cover energy, the environment, around the whole regional northwest. Um, and when Zeki and I were sitting down to talk about this whole panel idea, he contacted me and said, climate change, go. <laughs> and I, I said, well, okay. Um, you know, covering this for four or five years now in the northwest, I think that it has come to this. That was the line that kind of came into my mind, was it has come to this. When I heard that the Delta Five were chaining themselves to train tracks after covering proposals for coal and oil export, export terminals and increased coal trains, oil trains through the region, it was only a matter of time to me before I was going to be covering that story. Um, and so I wanted to try to bring that conversation to you and hear more from the community about that. So the goal tonight is not to talk your ear off and really have you kind of be feeding this conversation with your own questions and thoughts about this. You'll see the note cards on your table about, you know, would you do jail time for the planet? Um, I want to challenge everybody who steps up to ask a question to answer that question before they ask their question, just because I'm curious. Um, so we'll talk for a little bit, and then we'll open it up. I want to introduce our um, phenomenal panelists. And I have to say, it seems so fitting to be having this conversation in a bar, because I'm pretty sure, as a Boston girl, that most of the American Revolution was plotted in places like this. <laughs> so... <laughs> Thank you so much to Abby Brockway. She's here in the middle. She's a member of the Delta Five and part of the environmental activist group Rising Tide Seattle. And some of you may know Abby was on trial last month for chaining herself to train tracks in Everett to protest coal and oil trains. Um, yeah, and we have Richard Gammon up here. He's Professor Emeritus of Oceanography and Chemistry and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Washington. And he's been studying climate change for decades, and he also testified 
at Abby's trial, and the key part of why he was there was because of this thing called the necessity defense, which basically says climate change is such a big problem that there was no other option. It was necessary to chain themselves to train tracks to try to protest it or to change it, to fight it. Um, I'm, I'm probably you know, destroying the legal terminology that would be associated with that, but that's in a nutshell what it's all about. And finally, we have Megan Ming Francis. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington and author of the award-winning book, Civil Rights and the Making of the Modern American State. I'm really glad we have these panelists here tonight because I think that it allows us to get into the parallels between what we typically associate with civil disobedience, which is the fight for justice and equality for African Americans in this country, and what we associate here in the Northwest with civil disobedience, which has been more traditionally connected to maybe tree-sitting when we think about the environment. I see some people in the room that are probably can remember you know, the, the days of Julia Butterfly and the owl wars, spotted owl wars, and um, there's a long history of civil disobedience on the environment in this region, but I will posit that climate change and civil disobedience on climate change is a new twist to that story in this region and, and globally. And I think that if any part of the country is, is going to be fired up about this and probably take it to the streets, it's probably going to be the Northwest. Let's just call a spade a spade here. Um, to be clear, I am not promoting or discouraging civil disobedience. <laughs> Um, I need to say that because I will. Like, I'll be out there covering Abby on the tracks, but I'll also be interviewing BNSF Railway about how much it's disrupted their business. That's my job, and I take it very seriously. So um, I'm really appreciative of everyone in this room, but I need to, to be clear about you know, my role as the journalist in covering this. Um, all right. So I think that um, climate change changes everything, as Naomi Klein wrote, right? This, we live in dangerous, very different times that some believe necessitate a specific type of action, that no longer is it, is it okay to be waiting for the permitting process to play out for some of these proposed facilities, because permitting is a, is a term that we use to indicate that a permit will eventually be issued. And I think Abby was somebody who first kind of explained that to me, that the process felt somewhat broken, and so people were needing to kind of make a stand, I guess. Um, there was a morning, I want to just talk briefly about kind of, so in, in the five years that I've been working this job, as soon as I came on in 2011, we had six proposed coal export terminals in the region. And now, since then, we've seen the coal terminals sort of drop off. We've got two left and one sort of like staggering along in Port Westward, uh, Oregon. And then we also have oil terminals on the rise. And so it feels like a big game of who's on first for me most days when I come into the office in terms of what, where is that proposal? What point are they in the permitting process? But point being, there's another one and another one and another one. And one morning I woke up, um, meanwhile, so as we've watched, you know, the oil trains have started moving to the existing refineries in Puget Sound from the Bakken oil fields of North Dakota. And now we've listed, lifted the ban on crude oil exports, which kind of changes the game even further. Um, those oil trains are already rolling through our city. And I woke up one morning two years ago and um, checked my phone for the news, as I'm sure everybody in this room probably does. Maybe I'm just the only weirdo. And um, a train had derailed in Interbay, in the BNSF railway yard in Interbay. And um, at that point, we didn't know what, what had happened, what, it, what was spilled, what was the risk. And so I, I rushed down there to cover it. And in my mind, I was thinking, oh, my God, this is our Deepwater Horizon moment. This is our Quebec oil train explosion moment. I, di you didn't, I didn't know at that point, and I was so worried. And, um, and Abby actually had a very similar experience that morning in hearing that news. And so I wanted to toss it to you now, Abby. What, um, what made you 
chain yourself to the tra- chain yourself to the train tracks that day. What was the moment for you? So um, when you speak about the, all the um, the proposals in the Northwest, um, I I very first started. I, I'm new to this activism stuff. I'm I'm a mom. I'm a business a small business owner, and um, I feel like I'm an unlikely activist. Um, but there does seem like there's a breaking point for everyone or something that snaps where you just can't accept things anymore. So when we were commenting with the Cherry Point Terminal at the convention center, and there were thousands and thousands of people, and the testimony was amazing, and you know, we, I felt like we were winning this um, in, with our comments and our power, to realize that um, that, that was not that was not all we had to do. You know, like, I felt like, okay, that should be shut down immediately. We, should, we said no. We don't want that. Um, but there's a song and dance that happens where there's adaptation and mitigation. So um, uh, the Lock Magantic accident that happened um, where some brakes failed and um, the train went down and vaporized, you know, 47 people in Quebec um, happened in 2013. And one year later is when this Magnolia derail happened in um, the Balmer Yard. In, um, that was a, a mile from my daughter's school. And um, that, that really hit home to me that, you know, I wasn't being protected by the agencies that were created to protect the people. The Department of Ecology is created to protect the people, but actually um, those, that Department of Ecology has been pressured and co-opted by business and their job is to adapt, you know, do adaptation and mitigation and keep jobs coming. It doesn't matter if the jobs make sense, if it actually harms our snowpack and our other industries, if it, what, what happens. So we're just saying yes as, as, as best we can and making people feel like they're involved in the process. But when we should have clear wins, when thousands of people turn out and, you know, scientists these people that are commenting are lay people and experts and two-minute comments and all these things are not happening. So when that derailment happened so close to my daughter's school and just feeling that fact that this is out of control, these agencies that are designed to protect us, even our, our politicians going to a lot of council meetings, you know, Nick Licata said, I wish there was more we could do, but all we can offer is, you know, these, these declarations and taking those to these hearings was not enough. Like, the politicians wanted to do more. Um, every, every representative that I wrote, you know, wrote me this policy, friendly policy thing, saying that they were on my side or they were concerned and they heard me. But I didn't feel heard at all. And um, I, I definitely feel like uh, looking at our history and how things are actually changed, I felt like I was absolutely enforcing the law. Instead of, instead of uh, breaking the law. And so the trial is wrapped up. What was your takeaway from the trial, Abby? You know, one of the takeaways was that um, what is it, I had to ask myself, what does it mean to be a citizen? What does that really look like? And understanding what it means to be a juror and, and, and the confusion for a juror member to say, wow, everybody in that room that heard the trial experts were convinced and moved that, that we were actually committing a crime um, that was not as, uh, not as large of a crime as what is happening in, in, in this state. And um, that it was necessary for us to do this. But they, they had to follow these instructions. 
that were given by the judge. And um, I, I realized that, that you all are potential jurors. We all are potential jurors. Tomorrow we could be called for the next trial. And we're representatives of the community. And to not understand what it is to be a juror, what it is to vote, what it is to fully participate, we're not taking all of the power that we have. Um, so it's actually educating people of what it means to be a juror, that you are actually a representative of the community deciding what harms are acceptable to the community. They all, in the, in the hallway afterwards, we talked to the, many of them, they wanted to acquit us, but they didn't know if they could or not. And they have that power. They just didn't know that they had it. They wanted to follow the instructions. And um, you can't unring the bell. After they heard that the expert testimony, the judge had to tell them, you heard that expert testimony, but I'm telling you that you have to unhear that, that you can't apply all that you heard. And um, so that was really confusing to them. And the judge felt like he had his hands tied and was not able to say to them, um, just, just give us necessity. So they, he felt like there wasn't legal precedent. So the Delta Five are going for an appeal to try to set this, put this brick in the road for other people that are going to follow us. We hope to inspire people. We hope that the brick is laid so that the pathway is there because um, really the judicial system is our last, um, our least corrupted um, branch of government. Basically to enable the necessity defense to stand next time so that when experts like Richard Gammon make their testimony, it stands as supporting that argument. Absolutely. And yeah. like I said, it's, it's in, um, we have appealed. And so we are hoping, I mean, what my prayer is, is that it does go to the Supreme Court. I mean, really, I, this needs to be talked about and addressed. You know, I mean, we have to dream big. We have to think we can make a difference. <laughs> I want to turn to Richard now because I find his role as a scientist in all this so interesting. Um, Richard, was it a tough decision for you to, to take a stand and actually argue on behalf of activists like Abby and, and the Delta Five? No, it was not hard. Okay, why? <laughs> I, uh, each scientist is, is different, and, and in your training, you're, um, you're told to be totally objective and that uh, you just do your science and you publish your papers in the peer-reviewed literature, and that's it. And I did that for a number of years, including interstellar chemistry. And then I came back uh, to, to the planet, fell through the stratosphere into the ocean, became an atmospheric chemist and a chemical oceanographer and a global climate change carbon cycle person. Um, and uh, I, I began to see that my science really mattered. It mattered to people. And uh, I needed to not just publish my science in the scientific literature, but uh, explain why it was important to people. And then beyond that, uh, that's all objective science, then to speak with my heart as well as my head and take a position on this. Now, that's dangerous. If you're a young scientist without tenure or if you're a government scientist, you may get shut down by your lab director, whatever. Uh, when I worked for NOAA, the, uh, I was told I was not supposed to speak about my attitude about the science. Uh, in, in the university, I was much freer to speak my, my mind. Uh, but I have many friends who were, uh, could not speak about their feelings about the science unless the lawyer was present and the public affairs officer was present. My friends in NOAA still are, uh, have uh, that restriction. So it took a while for me to, to move from objective science to uh, connecting my heart and my head and talking about this. 
And then, you know, I really admire people like Abby. I'm not quite there to, to stand on the tracks yet, and I admire those people who are willing, have the moral courage and, and conviction to do that. I am willing to say, this is the science, this is what it means to people, and this is my, my view about the science. So it was very easy for me to, to speak in the trial. I, I, I was asked a little bit about how I got to that point of view, but I was mainly asked to testify on the impacts of climate science, uh, of, of climate change, on the Pacific Northwest and globally. And you said, I want to read you a quote, actually, that you said during the trial. You said, there is nothing in our history, our living memory, or our genes to prepare us for the effects of climate change that we've already created through the burning of fossil fuels. Okay, what I meant was that... Um, <laughs> What I, meant, what I meant was, uh, and that's not a, a, a wild statement, basically the, the, the atmosphere that we're breathing here, actually if we went outside and away from the traffic, you'd be breathing 400 parts per million, 0.04%. The last time the clean air in the world had that level was 3 million years ago. Were there any people 3 million years ago? No. Was even the genus Homo around then? No. There was Lucy. There was uh, maybe Homo erectus and Homo habilis, but there were no humans then. So when I say it's not in our genes, there is nothing in our memory, in our history, in our culture, in the history of civilization, or in our genes that prepares us for the climate change to which we've already made the atmospheric change. Thank you. I want to turn to Megan Ming Francis now. Um, I'm fascinated with the parallels between the civil disobedience that was necessary during the civil rights movement and, and arguably now again during the Black Lives Matter movement and the environmental movement. So I'm curious just to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, so I, 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 on so many levels I think it's fascinating, right? So for many of you guys know, whether it's um, before um, MLK and before the 60s and the 50s, um, African Americans, in terms of kind of fighting for the freedom and equality, use civil disobedience as a form of protest against injustice, right? And we see that again taking form in different ways, very much so in the environmental movement. Uh, but, but I think, in, in terms of if I can take the kind of question in a slightly different direction here, um, one of the things that, that I do see, whether it's whether it's this room or nationally, in terms of the environmental movement and who's using just civil disobedience, right, and who's advocating for what, is, is a very stark difference in the, in, at least in the color of the people that are advocating for, for change, right? The environmental movement, by any means, is not all white, right? But in terms of the, predominantly the number of people, or at least, at least the look of the people in the room, it is predominantly white. Um, but, but if I can say a little bit something else in terms of the environmental movement and civil disobedience, I think in, in, at least in terms of how we see it now, it seems to be, if we look at the Black Lives Matter movement, it's mostly black and a number of other minorities, right? If we look at at least the environmental movement in Seattle, it's predominantly white. I mean, I think one of the reasons why that is, it's oftentimes I hear it's like, oh, people of color really are just not interested in the environment. They're, they're occupied with other issues. I don't, think it's that, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think part of the issue is how we define what are environmentalist concerns, right? Um, and, 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 is that just, and is that just, like, and also within that sphere, what matters, right? So is it, is it, and nothing's wrong with these things, and they all can matter. Do trees matter? Do forests matter? Does lead poisoning matter? Does... Uh, brown water coming out of the faucets in Garfield High School or Rainier Beach matter? What necessarily matters? What's considered environmentalist concerns? 
Um, and I think one of the issues, at least, that I've noticed and that other people have critiqued, I think once part of the larger movement, um, is that there seems to be a divergence, at least, um, not, not, not completely or totally, but partially, um, in the way the environmental movement is defined in terms of what issues are important, what issues we should like organize and use civil disobedience around, and the way in which, at, at some level, they're not connected to issues of social justice or race. Do you see what we're seeing in Flint, Michigan right now as an opportunity for civil disobedience to, to combat that? Oh, racial, yeah. You know. No, so I mean, in, in terms of, I think, some of the critique from like black and white scholars, activists, and journalists has been, has always been that concerns of, envir and c concerns of the environmental and, and environment and race are very much intertwined. At, 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 in so many of these levels, so many of these issues impact people at the margins and at the bottom the most, right? And we see that in Flint. Um, and it's a way, I think, that we can combine very much these issues of race, um, also it, race, class, and the environment, right, in terms of the lead poisoning of the pipes um, and the different people that were impacted, which were mainly poor whites and blacks in Flint, Michigan. And you see people organizing around that. But, I mean, the always issue is, is that it's, it's not that there wasn't any organizing before in Flint, but there wasn't at least this outpouring. People were like, oh, my God, <laughs> there's a water crisis in Flint, right? There was always a water crisis in Flint, right? There's, there's like, there's, the reason why infant mortality for black and white children in Flint is so, is so high is because of poisoning of water in hospitals and in homes. And for, be it, for better or for worse, I'm not saying it's anybody's fault in particular, but there are certain issues that are marginalized in any movement, right? Yeah, so how, how does, you know, Seattle with an environmental movement that arguably is very white in this city, how does that movement become more racially integrated, would you say? Inclusive. So I, 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 love, I love this question, Zaki. I think this should be a whole thing, right? <laughs> um, but it's, it's, so to this question, I, I think part of it is, um, is, is reaching out to different communities. Because I, I, there's so many concerns that are justifiably important. Um, but I, I, there's a, actually a number of really great reports. I think the most recent was a report done in 2014 by a scholar at University of Michigan, and um, uh, she's an environmental scholar. Um, but it looks at kind of the diversity problem, and one of the things she points to um, is the lack of top officials in um, environmentally focused NGOs. Um, and so I think that's a big issue in terms of the hiring of people of color that could perhaps shed light on concerns of this. But it's also talking to different communities, right? It's also reaching out. I went to, I was, I'm born and raised in Seattle, Washington. I came back a year and a half ago to the hometown after a leave of 16 years because <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, uh, I had to get a break. Um, but I, <laughs> I needed a break. Um, but I... I, I went to Garfield High School, and part of the reason why I use the fountain example is that we didn't drink out of water fountains at Garfield. The water wasn't safe because it was brown. It came out of faucets, and it came out of, like, water fountains as brown water. But, like, nobody, nobody cared, right? And there was other concerns. We needed textbooks, and we had tiles falling from the walls, right? And we, have a, we had other poisoning in the walls. <laughs> um, so, but, but, I, but I think in terms of, like, reaching out to different types of Different, different communities, I think that concerns especially for people who live at the margins, concerns of the of environment, of 
are important to them. I think everybody at the base wants to live in communities and in, go to schools and in workplaces in which they are safe, which they can play safe, which they can work, which are safe and sustainable communities. Everybody wants that, right? So how do we create a culture of that for everybody, right? Um, not just some people from certain schools, right? Not certain people from certain communities, but for everybody. So... <laughs> The issue that got Abby to chain herself to tracks, is that an issue that you think could or should be one that more members, you know, communities of color in, in, this, in this larger community should be aware of and active on? Oh, yeah. No, definitely for sure. So why isn't it? Or what's, what's missing? Or where's the connection? I think, I, so I think a large part of it is that, I mean, I'm not the, I'm, well, I'm somewhat of an expert, but not totally. Uh, <laughs> I can't, I can't speak for everybody. Um, but what I can say is that I think, an, I, I think there's been d d uh, divisions in certain movements, right? And so I think a large part of especially people of color being active in movements like this is wanting to see themselves as part, of, as part of the movement, as people wanting to reach out to them. And also for their own concerns, people wanting to form alliances and coalitions with them. I think that's what I think is so actually energizing about the Black Lives Matter movement, which is different than, let's say, the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s. I think at, at, like, at, I think at a macro level, the Black Lives Matter movement seeks to build alliances with, uh, with people who are focused on gender equality, LGBTQ rights, and immigration reform against specifically immigration detention centers, right? Um, but one of the things that I think is really interesting about the Black Lives Matter movement right now is environmental justice and, and or environmental racism concerns are not kind of one of these t the top priority areas, but it could and it certainly should be, right? Um, but, but I think, but I do think part of the reason why that is the case is they don't feel included and are wanted in a movement, right? And I think that there's ways that both sides of movements can work to create a kind of alliances with people. Um, and I think that, like, th this movement would be stronger with, with different people. I think the other movement would be stronger with different people. Um, but, yeah. yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that, Abby Richard, that you want to add? I do. The Shell No um, action that happened here really, I felt like, caused a lot of groups to come together that were unlikely to come together. And um, it was really um, difficult working together. And we formed this spokes council, and there was a lot of racial tension. There was a lot of um, all sorts of different tensions that happened. And we had to... It, I um, was not a Kai activist, but I was on the land action. And um, there, the police um, definitely saw all these groups come together in a kind of a motley crew. Um, not, uh, I mean, we all were familiar with them in our different separate actions, but to come together and the tension of how that worked was really powerful to witness, and I learned a ton by that whole situation and how different people were treated and my role of separating myself from the group because I, did, I, I couldn't trust everyone because I didn't know everyone and, and, and things were happening. So I moved towards the police and just paced back and forth in front of the police to, to one, say, we're not afraid and um, we're serious. And those types of, of, of coming together and watching how things happen was really an amazing um, event, I think. Did you witness people of color that were participating in that action 
treated differently or, or what, what did you yeah, see? And, and you know there's some court support things that need to happen for you know someone was arrested that was a person of color and has been traumatized by the police and um, yeah so those types of things you see and you realize as a person of privilege um, you have to understand what your role is and I completely don't understand I've learned enough to be dangerous and I'm continuing to learn and ask questions and um, find my way and apologize and stumble and, and do things that are more unhelpful than helpful. Um, but I think as you become allies with unlikely groups that you don't work with, um, that shows that you do care and that you keep showing up even when things aren't you know, comfortable. Yeah. Your comment definitely made me think of just watching the Malheur refuge occupation and how that how different that would look if those were people of color that had occupied that national wildlife yes can i can i add something very quickly here so in in terms i just had to think about this a little bit more i i think i think what would also help and so i'm 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 specifically reminded of the um of the feminism movement right in terms of the 60s and 70s in part because there's for those who focus on um kind of the history of feminism in the united states um there was at there's a big kind of break that happens between um, women of color and white women in the movement, right? Um, and in part because women of color in the movement were like, you have to address both issues, gender and race, at the same time. And not all, not all, but many white women were like, no, we need to first address gender and then we can address the issue of race, right? And so that w- what we get in the end, not, not, not completely, but a number of women of color, Asian women, Native American women, Latina women, and black women break from white women in the movement in part because they're like, we cannot actually address gender without also addressing race. I say that to say, if I bring that back to the environmental movement, many I know, especially African Americans who are living especially in marginalized communities, are saying we cannot address these really crucial areas of the environment if we do not also address issues of race as well. So Black Lives Matter and then the environmental movement. But, I mean, both. Both yeah. at the same time, right? It's not, and I think environmentalists are exactly right. Like, it, it can't be just race, right? Like, but it, these... But there's a ways that there's ways I'm like trying to drink wine at the same time. <laughs> there's, there, there's ways that we should address both at the same time in which we shouldn't. I think some people are saying, and, I, and you know, you can agree or disagree, but we shouldn't address one above the other. And that at, at certain levels, and I think especially in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, that it, part of their saying is that we need to live first, right? That if it. Sure, we want to fight for these really important issues such as education, voting, housing, and the environment. But first, I need to live. A question for, for any of you can take a stab at this. Is there an appropriate kind of civil disobedience? I spoke to BNSF when, when the tracks were being blocked, and, um, and they said, you know, we're, we're trying to conduct business. We are a business. We move product, and we are unable to move product right now. Um, <laughs> Curious, is there is there inappropriate civil disobedience? Uh, I would just like to steer the question more that I think that we keep, need to keep it. Um, we we can be frustrated and we can be angry, but when we do it, the most powerful thing is the more of the patient route, I believe, and it's it's actually protecting what we love, and um, so I think. That is where it has to come from. Um, and I think that's really, really important. I think when we get impatient um, and we come from anger, then 
I think we lose some ground. I think this, this moral fight that happens um, needs to be presented because what we have as opposed to what the powers that be have is love and connection and they have power and money. And so we have to fight differently. And so um, as long as we um, disrupt in, in that way, I think that's where our potency and, our, our, and, and that's where I think we can make ground. Um, as far as the disruption of, of business, that's, that's the point. I mean, I, really, um, it's the disruption, and I feel like um, it's when we get impatient with the disruption. I think in the ba Black Lives Matter, when people wanted to hear Bernie Sanders talk, and they took a day off, and they were mad because their day was disrupted, as an ally, we have to look at the larger picture and be patient and feel that discomfort for that day and breathe it in and say, yeah, it, it, this is important, the larger picture here. It's not, there is no savior. There's nobody that, can, that we want to hear bad enough to, um, we are the ones we've been waiting for. So we have to not think that we can hear some person speak and that's going to change our um, way of doing things. We have to take the power from within. And when opportunities happen, we have to support one another because the, the power and, and what scares the powers that be is when unlikely groups work together and we don't micro have this microaggression that we've been talking about or this thing where we have infighting, but we're all on the same side. Um, and we can be more powerful when we connect, even when it's uncomfortable. So, I mean, disruption and uncomfortableness is the goal, I would say. I'll let Richard take a stab at that. <laughs> I agree entirely with, with what she said. I, I would just say not all products are equal. You know, if you're a Texas oil man, you talk about product. And uh, some, some products are, you know, you know in, in concentration camps, there was a product too, right? So let's not just talk about product. Let's talk about what we should not be moving, what we should not be digging up, what we should not be burning, what we should not be moving by rail. I'm against any expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure anywhere in the world, especially here in the Northwest. I have very, I mean, very short. I, I, the whole point, I mean, I'm going to agree with my fellow presenters here. The, the whole point of pro uh, civil disobedience is that it shouldn't be convenient for you. Like, the, <laughs> like it shouldn't be like, oh, y your business still continues fine. That is the whole point. It should be the point. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a ton of quotes about this, right, in terms of, like, your patient, our, your way has never, has, all, has always meant never to us, right, that Martin Luther King says this in a letter from a Birmingham jail, right, that I'm, we're, we're unconcerned about the disruption of businesses in Alabama because of our protests. That is not a concern to us. Uh, there's bigger issues on the line than, than the disruption of your business that actually matter, that human rights and civil rights matter more than your capitalism. The other thing that I just wanted to mention is that um, actually going to jail was um, more mind-blowing to me than anything I've ever done in my life. You know, 24 hours in the Snohomish County Jail as a person of privilege to see how broken the system is and how, um, you know, the community has given up on these people. They don't have any um, family support. They, they feel safer in jail than anywhere else. And... Um, 
I have never seen so many broken women and how, um, you know, I look at the homeless situation and we're criminalizing people because we don't know what to do with them. So if we just say they're breaking the law and put them away, then we don't have to deal with them. And, say, you know, you think of all of these issues, they're connected. They're all connected. You know, the immigration situation, all of these issues are connected to the larger picture. Um, and when I got out of jail, it was hard to just stay on the environmental because I, I was, it changed my life. I dream about these women every night. I, you know, I, it, it's, it, it, we have to start connecting the dots and realizing that our systems are not protecting us. They're not representing us. Money has infiltrated our, our, our politicians. And so they are not able to represent us. They're in representing industry. And, um, and that's where I feel like the, that's where I feel like I'm, I've snapped in a way of, I am going to love the fossil fuel industry to death. <laughs> and, and that's really what I look at. I, I mean, I, I'm starting to think upside down in the way that everything happens. I see things so differently with this entire experience. Um, going to jail was, was um, life-changing and not in a bad way. It was important for me to experience that, I think, fully. That's a perfect segue into our next question. Um, this is my last question, and then so, so be thinking of your questions and be ready to jump up to the microphone. Um, what is that, you know, for, for most of us, we're, we get sucked into our daily lives. You know, for me, it's the daily deadline or the big story I'm trying to get done. For some of us, it's thinking about retirement or getting kids, kids to school on time and paying the bills. And um, I guess I'm so curious as to this idea of that moment. I keep asking you this question, Abby, where you, you kind of put aside your daily obligations and you just say, tomorrow, I'm going to miss my daughter's first day of school, and I'm going to go chain myself to train tracks. I want to know, for you guys, what would you say to someone that sort of is kind of navigating that line, isn't ready to make that jump, isn't, you know, still sees you as sort of the, the weirdos, the outliers? Um, and, and I would love to hear more from the audience about that, too, in terms of where you're at on that spectrum, I think, is where I, the way I see it. Yeah, I actually um, brought, you know, Seattle has created a pledge of resistance for the spring um, because we hope to inspire others to take action. And um, there, I have some forms you can fill out. Um, and I started out um, supporting people by witnessing the, the actions and um, watching how they, they unfold and how safety is so important and, um, you know, joining a group that you can trust and, and, and understand how that works. But um, everybody, you know, you can't, a lot of people when I have these talks are saying, what is the one thing I can do to make a difference? Is it, just, is it um, you know, breaking the law? Is it, what is it? And it is not, a, there's no silver bullet. We all are called to do something different. And um, I think it's important to, figure out what your gifts and talents are to bring to it. And um, if you, you may not be the one that has that because you carry fear or um, anxiety about that, but you can sing and chant and witness that. You can show up in a courtroom. You can, do, you can still um, write letters to the editor. You can call the radio station and talk about what you want to hear on the radio. 
Because if you're tired of hearing just white people talk about something and you say, I want it to be a more diversified conversation. I want to know what the Native Americans are thinking about this. I want to you know, hear about whatever it is that you want to talk about. You can drive a lot of that stuff. You know, the media um, does respond to stuff. And do you just want to hear about the weather every day? And you know, do you want to hear about the accidents that were reported? No, you don't. And so we should all be complaining full on about that because um, the, all of these different segments of our society um, can be flipped on their head if we want that. Yeah, call me anytime, seriously. Do you have else want to weigh in on that? Well, Richard, I mean, yeah, you're a scientist. I mean, when, when Abby was talking about it, we all bring our different, we're all called to take right. action in different ways. I'm curious, right. where does your brain go with that? Well, it took me a long time to move from objective science to science and explaining the, the social significance of it and then, uh, then go beyond that and put my values into that. And uh, I may be willing to go to jail. I may be willing. <laughs> I'm moving. I'm moving. <laughs> I admire you. I look up to you. Uh, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm willing to testify about, about what it means about the climate science. I would also say that Richard is brave in that, you know, he risks funding and um, scientists yeah. get harassed. And um, I cannot tell you, you know, when we were investigating of who we were going to call, we asked Michael Mann if he would. He's actually in um, litigation and can't do that. Massive harassment. All, all scientists are being harassed. And um, that is not talked about nearly enough. So um, there's a lot that he is taking on, and he is as braver than I. I mean, th those types of things are, are privately not talked about. But I just want to say that, um, that those types of things need to be talked about, and at least sh light needs to be shown on those things. Yeah, we, uh, I'm a member of the Society of Environmental Journalists, and at our last conference we had a whole panel about the use of the Freedom of Information Act to target scientists like Michael Mann yeah. and force them to spend their time, instead of doing research, responding to these FOIA requests. So yeah. it's definitely something people are talking about, but not, not as broadly, perhaps, as necessary. I want to open it up. Come on up. Ask your questions. What are you thinking about? Tell us, tell us where you're at on that spectrum of, of activism. Are you ready to chain yourself to a train track? Do you think that we should not be disrupting business? How are you contributing? And, or take it anywhere you want. <clears throat> I'll start off also by saying that I was going to be a computer scientist. I was going to come back and work at Microsoft, and look how far I've fallen. <laughs> that was my dream when I was 18 and a senior at Garfield. I hope Bill Gates is hearing this. <laughs> Go ahead. Good evening. I have a question from early on about which we might all participate. Abby had mentioned that the jury was confused. What about the fully informed jury, and how that, in our history, with the Fugitive Slave Act and traffickers in stolen property, interstate trafficking in stolen property, the Underground Railroad. Are you following what I'm talking about? So, so what's your question? Sorry, that the jury wasn't, was confused the fully informed jury. Yeah, and uh, Jury Nullification is a great book to read and um, learn about the history of, of, uh, of where a jury came from, what it means, and um, 
that's what I hope to do is to empower us to learn about what it means to be a juror. The bottom line for us all here tonight to find out about this is that in the years before the Civil War, when people who were themselves trafficking in stolen property by being slaves and running away, or conductors on the Underground Railroad who were aiding and abetting in this trafficking of stolen property, that they would come to trial. The jury would recognize, yes, these people committed these crimes. They're trafficking in stolen property, escaped slaves. And the juries would rule not guilty yep. because that is a privilege of trial by jury back to English common law. Thank you. Um, first, I want to say I'm incredibly proud to have two colleagues on the faculty of the University of Washington hey, hey. up on the... <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, there aren't a lot of academics who are willing to put themselves in the places that you are, so I really appreciate that. Um, Megan, I'm, I want to challenge you a little bit. I think you were um, very soft on the environmental movement. Oh yeah, because uh, y'all y'all yeah. are like all white. I brought my I brought my black partner there. Yeah, I'm like this is it, y'all. This is it. I mean, I think I think um, I, I actually think the environmental movement is learning slowly that the front lines of this this uh, fight that we're in um, is as the front lines of all the fights about poverty or whatever yeah. is in. Um, marginalized and poor communities. And I think the reality is, I've come to this conclusion certainly, is that um, environmentalists cannot win um, without an alliance with people who are being affected on right. those front lines. Whether you're talking about Native Alaskans yes. Or, yes. Um, or Asians who fish in the Duwamish or, right. or whatever. Yes. So I think it's very important for us to have, I, I would say, and this is my challenge to you, yeah. a little bit sharper critique. Mm -hmm. In order to get we to the place of understanding yeah. what we have to do from here is a little sharper critique of the movement up to this point. Right. No, I, I, I yes. I'm <laughs> I, I, I don't have that much more to say, but I, you know, I, I think that there's a number of incredible blind spots in the environmental movement. Um, and I do think in order for long-term and much kind of, I think the success that many people want means really these kind of much bigger coalitions with people of color. And what that also means is, not, is, is, is kind of direct reaching out to communities of color um, about like different concerns. Um, and, I, and I don't think that it's just happenstance that people of color aren't involved in these movements, right? It's not that like, oh, they're, more, they're too concerned, they work too much, they're too concerned with racism and discrimination, they just don't have the time to worry about the environment, right? That is, that is just a horrible, tired excuse. Like, now in 2016, like, we, we should just banish that from our like, list of excuses, right? that there's different ways in which people of color have been purposefully excluded from the environmental movement. And so what that means in 2016 is that we need to affirmatively address the ways in which people of color have been excluded. I want to weigh in on that just a little bit from the media perspective. Um, you know, I come to work in the morning every day and I get hundreds of press releases throughout the course of the day. 
Um, and the Northwest is notorious for having a lot of well-established, well-funded environmental groups. The, the communities of color are not sending me press releases. So when my editor is asking me, what are you covering today? What, are the, what is the big news? The stuff that is bombarding me as a journalist when you're on deadline is just that, is the voice not from the community of color about the environmental issues of the day. So when you were talking about sort of choosing the issues more wisely in the environmental community, it's also a function of communicating about the issues in a community more directly with the media. And so, you know, I'm, I guess I'm self criticizing here in terms of not having the door wide enough open, but sometimes when you're on a deadline, it's hard to be like, no, you know what, I'm going to go hang out in South Park today and just see what's going on, just find out what's going on in that community. That's not exactly a pitch I can give my, give my editor and say, I'm going to have a story for you by 5 p.m. <laughs> go ahead, Zeki, what's your question? So, uh, I'm, uh, I'm realizing that Black Lives Matter, what I'm seeing is that it's really pushing uh, at least some candidates to really address racial inequality um, specifically, you know, the Democratic nominees are starting to address that, where in the past I don't think that's happened. I'm attributing a lot of that to that movement. So I'm wondering, is there an equivalent for that for the environmental movement? Because I'm still not seeing the candidates talk about the fierce urgency of attacking climate change. Um, so I'm wondering, is there an equivalent for uh, uh, an environmental movement to influence and push candidates to really address it the way they're addressing racial inequality. Well, that's the thing. I mean, here I'm saying be patient and be loving and not as forceful. I, I completely admire the, the, the tone that the Black Lives Matter has set. Their urgency is right here and right now. And that's what we talk about, the trickiness of, of the environment crisis. The, um, it's a slower moving machine. I mean, I, every time I see the news and I'm like, oh, 75 million people are infected by this flood. So, so maybe now those 75 million will believe that, that we need to change our ways and, like, yeah, yeah. and move to different things. Um, but it's not, it's not like someone getting shot in the street and blood flowing. You know, it's not that, that same situation. So I definitely see the trickiness of it. And it's a mistake to um, try to use the same tactics, um, I think, um, when, when it's different, in a way. I'm not sure. I don't know. But I, I think we've learned a lot from Black Lives Matter in um, being braver, being more um, uh, transparent or... Um, urgent. Um, I think um, also the native people of our region have, have, that's why I think Seattle has made such great, or actually the West Coast has made such great um, strides because we do have good relationships with the native people. They have been fighting and protecting and defending their lands for a long time and we've had a lot of education um, to learn how to work together and um, basic things that are so obvious, like thinking of the seven generations and not just um, the job that you need today for today. Um, there, there's so much wisdom of just take only what you need. You know, don't, don't just take the, you know, just pillage all of our resources, but we need to, you know, we need to use only because we're stealing from our children. So I think, um, I think we are starting to learn that, but I would say to all the people here... Um, if you haven't 
um, taken classes to learn more about um, how to be a good ally and to educate yourself about the movements that don't you think you're not directly affected by. Um, how do we support and learn and observe from those movements? Because I do feel like um, we've made good strides by, by learning some of that. I want to add a little bit. Yeah, Can I go we'll first? Go yeah. Uh, so uh, if you really want to look all the way out, uh, it's, it's not seven generations, which is good. It's not 70 generations. It's not even 700 generations. What we're doing now, what we decide to do now in the next, in the next 10 years, 20 years, will affect the next 10,000, 20,000 years, as far into the future as human civilization is in the past. That's what we're talking about. That's a decision we have to make. That's on our heads right now. That's what we have to do. So it's the fierce urgency of now, but it's a, it's a wicked problem because people say, oh, climate change is happening so slowly, we can't solve it in time. That's the problem. We have to look far into the future. It's a really hard problem. So, so for me, the way that I see it is that... I. I I think actually this current election cycle to me has actually highlighted the importance of, of a coalition in terms of like race and environmental justice, right? So the only time in which I've actually seen substantive conversation in terms of, well, at least the Democratic side debate, has been around the water crisis in Flint, right? That is in terms of if we think about, right, there's, there hasn't been these kind of, these really interesting questions and or debate around different types of environmental issues, even though there should be, right? Even though we still at least over the past month have had Obama being like, we have a crazy climate change problem, right? Nobody, okay. Um, but a, the issue, the water crisis in Flint, people are actually talking about it, right? And it's one of the rare issues that touches on issues of environmentalist and also race, um, and I think that, like, here is an example of, of what could happen if these two different groups joined up in a more explicit, direct way, right? And I think the, the goal is, is, to, is to highlight these, these issues, right? I, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm a, they should, I, I, think, I think anger actually serves a very useful purpose in these. I think we should ang be angry about the way that the government, like, in terms of like government lacks around specific policies, about the way that's, I mean, especially poor communities, um, whether they are white, black, Asian, Native American, Latino, in which young kids are dying because they can't get the right water because there's poisoning in their walls. We should be angry about that. Um, but to this election, again, I, I, I think there's great, great potential for an alliance around these and to highlight different environmental issues. All, I think, environmental issues touch on issues of race. They all do. Go ahead. Uh, I think this is a question primarily for Abby, but something that has prevented me, at least, from becoming a little more involved in the environmental movement is the fact that, at the end of the day, I will be driving my car to whatever the protest site is. How do you end up reconciling with yourself the fact that you are very reliant on this system but then are protesting the very system in which you are reliant on? I love this question. <laughs> um, you know, that is the thing that if you read any blog or any comment from a story that talks about any of these actions that happen, um, people want to talk about, well, these hypocrites, how did you get to the action? Did you drive? And yeah... I did. And, you know, to be righteous, naked and 
in your basement, not participating in, 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 with any rubber or any plastic, fossil plastic. fuel, no plastic, is not being a part of the community trying to make change. You can be perfect and righteous, but that does nothing for the community. That, doesn't, that does not change how we all have choices. And so to fully be um, drenched in fossil fuel and own it and say, I am doing this and I don't care what a hypocrite I am, I am brave enough to wear that cloak because I want choices that are different from what we have. And so to be, to be um, pure is not the point. It's to get down and get dirty, be saturated in oil, own it, take it on, and let go of that fight. Like People want to just distract from what the real choices are. So if people are talking about plastic kayaks or that you, your tennis shoes are made with oil in them, you know, that is like missing the point that we want new choices. We want to be able to move through this world with different opportunities and, and we don't want to be as entrenched as we are. So like, let's, let's bathe in this oil. Let's own it. Like, that's not scary. Like, let's bring it on. Like, now what do we do? Now that we're all in it, what are we gonna do? So. You know, we carpool, we have the lights, you know, some people have solar panels, other people do different things. We do that, but that's not where we have to stay and just say, oh, that's all I can do. You know, like, how, how do we, you know, when, the anxiety of lying in bed at night knowing that my daughter's future is screwed up causes me to say, I'm not just gonna do all those different things. Like, I, I'm gonna take the next step because you know what, the American dream that was sold to us is is like not it anymore. And I know the young people don't, that's not their dream. Their dream is, is getting back to the basics and, and um, you know, having a just society, living in a just society. That's great. Uh, my granddaughter, Hazel, she's about six now, uh, but when she's 19 or 18 and a freshman in college, she's gonna say, hey, granddad, if you knew back then what was going to happen, why didn't you do more? Why didn't you do everything you could to protect me and our world? I don't want to hear that from her if I'm still alive. I don't want to hear that. I want to do everything I can to make a better world for our children and our grandchildren. Here's a, here's a story I've been sort of contemplating. Is, um, you know, we talk about this sort of getting off fossil fuels, not you know, riding the kayaks, to, that are made of petroleum, biking to work. But the truth is, in this city, if you can bike to work, chances are you are affording to live within the city and be close enough to your place of work that you can, you can afford to do that. And that actually is not the same. I mean, when we talk about environmental justice and we talk about you know, taking this action and where do you start, for some people it's, how do I get to work in the morning? And biking is a luxury, not actually something that is possible right now. So it's all about those, those daily choices. Go for it. I love your comment about uh, own, own the oil. Um, I think we do get caught up in letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. And um, the notion of if, it, if you can't be pure, then, you, then it's all nonsense and you can't participate. But it's interesting to notice with the dropping price of oil that the purchase of large gas-guzzling vehicles has gone right back up as if we never learned anything. And... I think what's interesting about Flint is that I, I feel like as a society we've had this atomization of empathy 
where atomization of empathy, oh. where it doesn't really affect me and I don't identify with that person. That's a different circumstance. And I think part of the limitations of the environmental movement over the last 20 years has been, you know, we care about organic food because the notion of it's safer for me, it's healthier for me, rather than it's putting less poison into the system. And the same thing with Black Lives Matter in terms of, well, it ain't me getting the shot, so why should I care? And I think what's interesting about Flint is that people, even despite their atomization of empathy, go, hey, I get city water. That could have been me. I guess it was black people, but, God, it could have been me. And it sort of cuts across these categories of lack of empathy. And I, I, I just sort of throw that out there as a, a discussion point. It seems like people have a real hard time getting out of their heads, getting out of their own lives, and that that's part of the problem with both the environmental movement and the racial justice movement. Maybe it's more of a statement than a question, but I still think it's a, a departure for discussion. Yeah, no, it's passage, Richard. I want to say something about uh, uh, whether Katrina was our moment. Some people, for some people, Katrina was the moment. That really was, whoa, that got me. And that made me, that changed me. That was, now then, how shall we live? That Kathleen Dean Moore says, now then, how shall we live in this new future? Now, uh, John McCain uh, said, it may take a, a real catastrophe in the U.S., maybe 100,000 people killed before, oh, we get it. I hope we don't have that. There were almost 2,000 black people killed in Katrina. Did that change us? Did Sandy do it? What will it take to change us in the U.S.? Thank you. Um, on, on the, on the, for whoever gave the last comment, I think that's, it's a, I think it's a great and a really, really, really thoughtful analysis about what's going on in terms of this idea of an empathy gap. Um, and I do think a lot of the issues, especially around race and even around like race, environment, immigration, even are, are often around. I don't see myself as that person, and I don't see my family as somebody that would ever be in an immigration detention center. I don't see my family as anybody that would actually be shot by the police and or would be even arrested by the police, right, and would spend a day or a few days in jail. Um, and I do, think that's a, that's a, I, I do think that's a huge part of, of, of what's going on, and I think in, in terms of how do we build a movement a much larger movement in which environmental concerns are also wrapped inside or are connected to racial justice concerns means to means to move without means to move outside of yourself um, and and to and to understand I think um, people from the outside who don't necessarily look like you and or your family members as um, as people with as people who have worth and are valuable I think that's also really 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 crucial. Um, and to move from kind of a, this individualistic type of perspective from a more of a, to more of a communal type of perspective that in order for us to get better, it means for all of us to get better. Um, and I think that's really, really crucial, and that's something that's very much lost, I feel like, in the contemporary environment. Hi. Thanks. Um, uh, <laughs> Point that down for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> there we go. Right. Basic, real basic question. 
Um, we were in Tacoma today uh, doing street theater uh, to fight TPP, um, and it was wonderful. Yeah, but, um, and then we're going down to Olympia tomorrow. We have, we're kind of short on roles. We were just scrounging to get people at the last minute. And I was thinking, how can we get some Black Lives people to be, I mean, it would be thrilling to have Black Lives, you know, some of the people in that group down there with us. We would have, I mean, it would have been just made it made the whole event uh, the way it should be. And we need more, we just need massive numbers on the street and it's working, it's, but we need everybody. <laughs> so that's all I have So what, what do you think um, <laughs> she could be saying to oh. communities of color to make a TPP protest, trans-Pacific partnership, where, where, where trade deal, by the way, yeah. Yeah. Um, so appealing I, to a broader community? I mm-hmm. think one of the, you know, this, I think as a white person, we, we, it's like convenient to say we want to diversify, but really the relationship has to start in, in an earlier place. You can't just say, we need some black people to show up so we have a more colorful rainbow. But we have to really, um, we have to meet people where they are yeah. and say, yeah. like we say, why are there no um, people of color here? Why are we, so we live in a white neighborhood. Um, so really with Rising Tide Seattle, we have a south side meeting and we have a north side meeting and you know we have a pretty diverse group but um, the, you actually have to you have to um, actually participate in yeah. in things that if you want a relationship with people uh, uh, that are diverse you actually have to start months and months and years before and and cultivate relationships and partner with people instead of say uh, so it, it's a, it's a tricky situation um, was bust in Seattle and yeah. the whole, you know, so I've, we've been through all of this. Yeah. And, and um, it's just not getting where it needs to get to. Yeah. And, well, we know. actually have to follow those people yeah. that have been on the front lines that understand, you know, this. So I, I think a lot of white people think if we just manhandle it or, um, and, and, and force things to happen, that if we just try hard enough, we can solve this problem. And, and really, um, like I said, the native people have been defending this land for a really long time, and so it's it's actually us listening to the wisdom of those that have been fighting these fights for a really long time, and I think our answers are already there. It's actually bringing us all together to, to work in a way where um, we listen more. The, the people of priv- privilege actually listen more to the wisdom of those who've been doing this a lot longer. And so I think it's a mistake to, to, um, to try to do that in that way. But I, I yeah. One-on-one for a lot of, you know, um, conversations to get there. But I don't think we have this long to wait. I really don't. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to take it back to the playground. Like, if you want a kid to come play with what you're doing, mm-hmm. you need to kind of show some interest in what they're doing. It's sort of, yeah. it's a two-way street, right? <laughs> but, hey, it doesn't help to talk about this. This meeting could be in a different neighborhood if you believe that. I think that's a fair comment. I really do. He just said it doesn't help to talk about this in this neighborhood, that we should be having this somewhere else. I, I think that's great. I'm glad everyone's here tonight. I hope that we try to branch this conversation out further. And next time, if we can have it in somewhere, some other part of the city, I'm down. Just tell me where to be. I just showed up because they said it's here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um.
let's let's take the next question. And I think we're probably gonna. This is, might be maybe one more question after this. So if you've got like something really pressing you want to get out there, jump in line right now. Um, I have a very spe specific question um, that I want a um, specific answer to. Um, no. You're being grilled. No. <laughs> it's about it's about, it's about your taxes. Uh, I was looking at them and. Um, so the, uh, going to um, the civil disobedience, and I think anyone here who has ever been caught in that horrible position where you're defending an act of civil disobedience, especially something, say, in a populated area like downtown, and you're defending it, and then the response, the rote response you get back is, well, you know, the civil mm -hmm. disobedience, yeah, they're making their point, but there's all these, all these small businesses, and we touched on this earlier, there's these small businesses that are being impacted and it's not their fault. So why, why is this coffee shop being made to suffer for something, especially for something in the environment where it's very hard to pinpoint because it's, you know, it, it, people see, it, it can be seen as an esoteric thing. It's not in people's faces as much as civil rights issues. And so the specific, the specific question I think that would be very helpful for, I think it'd be helpful for everyone to have is if you had any, um, and if you had any uh, specific language to address that, that snarky, Sort of, you know, why, is these, why do these people have to suffer? That's not their fault. These people should be doing this, you know, and then, you know, they're naive. They should be doing this, and then it spins off, and the, the, the discussion's completely distracted. You find yourself, you know, talking about somebody who works at a coffee shop as opposed to the issue that's, that's the base of civil disobedience. And then, and then I'll follow it saying, if the answer is there isn't a quick answer to that, that, that which I kind, of, I, I kind of suspect is the answer, then what do we do with that if that's, in fact, the case? So, you know, when, when the plastic bag ordinance came um, in Seattle and people were saying, the, the, one of the arguments was, this is going to be hard for homeless people. They, you know, they can't afford to spend the five cents, or the, the low-income people, they can't afford to spend the money on these bags. And I'm like, dude, those are the most resourceful, resourceful people there are. I mean, those people can do that. So if you are going to have an action where you are impacting a small business, um, you need to have you need to work it out and explain the situation ahead of time. But those businesses are already suffering. Our our infrastructure, are, we're in trouble. We're suffering, and they're already suffering. So, you know, if you look at it in longer term, that they're suffering for a day because something is shut down or disrupted, um, I do think that there's a longer term and a bigger picture where um, the suffering is put on the the people that complain the most are those that are are comfortable and are not used to discomfort. But those people that are already suffering and uncomfortable know what it's like to be uncomfortable for a day and can sa solve it or you know can deal with it for a day because every day is uncomfortable for them. So I I still go back to that larger picture of is that really is that really the issue? Because um, a smart action does think about things where if you're impacting people, then you talk about it ahead of time with them and you work it out. Um, it's dumb to, to not do that. Like, right. if you're going to do an action, you can't just do a knee-jerk thing where you don't realize who you're impacting and that kind of thing. So I think I, I understand the spirit of what you're saying and, and the worry of, like, harming the person that you're trying to help. Um, yeah, but and again, it, and, and, and this is going back to, I really... There's no snappy answer that I can think of. Right. Well, that was good, actually. I like that a lot, that these, you know, people are already impacted. This is just making it apparent. Um, I think that's very helpful. Did you want to add anything, Richard, or... No? Okay. Thanks. Right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I'm very supportive of the civil disobedience. Um, 
I was an organizer of the Tar Sands Civil Disobedience in the summer of uh, 2011 in D.C., and I was uh, arrested during that. Since then, um, a lot of the discussion tonight has been around environmental justice and social justice. Um, Flint, you know, maybe the, you know, I'm, I'm a Detroiter, so the paradigmatic environmental justice issue of our times is Flint. However, one, one of the things that I do is I train with Al Gore's Climate Reality Project, and I have on my computer his 500-slide deck, which is a bit long. <laughs> but when you go through the first 300 slides, which are, four, which are all scientifically documented, and they're forecasts of the consequences of climate change, and you look out 20 or 25 years, you see that the consequences of the fires, the floods, are going to be in the southern hemisphere, the drought, and that the storms, while yes, we could have another Katrina or Sandy here, it's likely that in the northern hemisphere, or most of the northern hemisphere, we have the money and the self-interest to build infrastructure to protect ourselves. That same storm, equivalent to Katrina or Sandy, happening on, in India or a place like that would do hundreds of times the amount of damage. So. My question is, I hate to ask this, is it possible that the climate movement really does not have that much to do with, in the United States, the social justice movement, the racial justice movement, even the, the environmental justice movement, that Flint and climate change are two different things. Flint as a crime, a hugely preventable crime, Climate change hitting the southern hemisphere, especially over the next 25 years. After that, the children of North America become an issue. But they're not an issue now. And climate change, to me, is right now, but not here. And how do you, how do you if that's right, how do you build that into a movement? Do you still talk about all of the issues of justice that have been important here over the last, since Martin Luther King say, or do you realize that that's actually pushing things in a partly wrong direction and also making climate change an issue of the left, which is what the right is saying anyway? I don't understand what you mean because, um, I mean, we have to worry about ourselves and know that we're connected to... I mean, we're not the only ones that are doing something. The world... Are, there, people all over the world are doing what we're doing. Like, so... Well, no, that's actually... Well, also, I mean, if you look at climate change, impacts here in the Northwest are, are very, very real, actually. I mean, our, our snowpack is disappearing. We don't have the same degree of snowpack that we used to. That's going to change our hydropower dynamics. That's going to change our irrigation. We have a dropping pH in the oceans that's going to change our ability to grow shellfish. I mean, I don't think that... I guess I'm just curious as to it's when, nothing close where you're to what's going to happen I won't in the southern that. hemisphere, which, I won't which that, is basically but. powerless. And the conversation shifts to the large social justice issues in the United States when the sufferers, at least for the rest of my life, are going to be in the southern hemisphere. And you know. Richard wants to take a stab at that. I, I'd like to address this. Yeah, I agree with you that the people who will suffer the most and are suffering now are the people who have contributed the least to the climate change. The, least, uh, the people who have emitted the least carbon dioxide by fossil fuel burning 
are the ones who are suffering now and will suffer the most in the future. And many of those people are in the southern hemisphere, in the, in the equatorial regions. Uh, so I think, but here in the Northwest, the Yakima Nation has said, when the salmon are gone, we're gone. And uh, Quechua-speaking people in the Andes have said, when the glaciers are gone, we're gone. So we have to think about uh, uh, social justice, environmental justice in a very, very broad way around the world and to many, many, many generations in the future. And we're also the um, fossil fuel corridor for, the, for Asia. So, I mean, that's what we're trying to do is, is um, stop this, this from moving towards Asia. I mean, you know. I also, I also don't think that you can distinguish and or delineate a specific kind of focus from other types of focuses. I think they're all, all, all linked. Um, in, in terms of what, while one could say, if we could look at kind of the future at least, whatever, the, kind of the, the next 10 or 20 years in terms of climate change. Um, b but it's still linked to all these other, I think, very, very important environmental concerns that are, that are again, linked to these other issues. I, you know, that, at least for me, in terms of the, the area of expertise that I do is around civil rights. And I think even in the Black Lives Matter movement, if I'm, I'm going to return there very quickly, is that there was, a, there was actually discussion, should we just focus on police brutality, right? This seems to be the biggest issue right now and, come in, and in the next few years. This is the biggest issue about black people being killed by the police. But it's, but it's still connected to all these other important domestic and international issues that you can't disentangle it from. Um, and, I, and I think that because of that, there's still like a focus on capitalism, a focus on housing, a focus on, um, a focus on voting, a focus on immigration, right? That you can't really, in order to attack kind of a big giant, you also got to attack the things that are below it that actually prop it up. That was a great question though, thank you. Um, okay, this is our last question, and then we're going to wrap up. All right, I'm, I'm friends with that guy, but I'm going to disagree with him. Uh, that's Those are the best as, friends. It's not as hard as going to jail. Uh, I, it's true that the southern hemisphere will suffer quite a bit more than the northern hemisphere. Poor people will suffer more than rich people. But the responsibility for dealing with the problem lies mostly with the people who have created the problem. And uh, so uh, working on it here solves the problem other places. Uh, reducing the carbon footprint in Bolivia is not going to mean much. Reducing it here does. It's also possible to work on more than one thing at a time. You don't have to pick one issue and say, that's all I care about. Uh, you can care about uh, environmental justice. You can also care about the science. You can care about, and different people will care about different things. I'm, I'm a little uh, concerned that people tend to just pick one issue and, and stick to it. Uh, there, there are, it's easy to see the connections, I think. It's not a question, but uh, thank you. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I think that was a great closing thought, actually. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> And thank you to our wonderful panelists, Abby Brockway, Richard Gammon, and Megan Ming-Francis. You guys have been great. That's it for this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. 
Humanities Washington presented this Think and Drink conversation. KUOW's Ashley Ahern served as moderator. The panel included activist Abby Brockway and UW professors Richard Gammon and Megan Ming Francis. Bree Ripley recorded their conversation at Naked City Brewery on February 17th. Tune in next week for more from Speakers Forum. 